0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with a big old science dork, Dr. Susanna Greer. How are you doing?
1: <laughs> I'm awesome. Even when did you get now. into
0: science? How how old were you when you got into science?
1: Oh, I've always been a nerd. Always wanted to know how things worked and what they did. Always. I, I can't remember. In fact, my I remember my first science kind of gig was I... I went to Science Olympiad in the fourth grade. And for whatever reason, I drew the short straw and got orienteering and got so lost in this competition in Macon, Georgia, they had to send the police. to <laughs> No way. <laughs> True story. So mm-hmm.
0: did they just like drop you off in the wilderness and say, OK, first yeah. one out of the woods wins?
1: Yeah. Get Good luck. Get back. And I, I, I <laughs> so, you, you've got to find your your way. Dun, dun, dun. but this this podcast really oh no <laughs> right right helps us to understand how how important so many fields of science are to cancer, but probably sure. not hearing.
0: for sure. So that's pretty good um, transition, Susanna, because this is all about folks who had hard scrabble upbringings, like our guest rags to riches story, you know, from Hollywood to the science lab, maybe not rags to riches. She does have some cool stories about her family, very successful um, family and Hollywood writers and artists and the like. And she talked about how she got into studying like sticky proteins and cuddling inside of microscopic worms. I'll leave that part to you, Susanna, but let me introduce her. Dr. Theodora Tolkien. Great name. She's a postdoctoral fellow at NYU Langone. So it's a, it's a basic research institute that's housed within the NYU Medical Center, uh, the Skirball Institute for Biomolecular Medicine. She's in the lab of the good Dr. Jane Hubbard. So, Susanna, Theodora Tolkien, microscopic worms, what does this have to do with cancer research?
1: Oh, my gosh. You guys are going to love Theodora. She is just fantastic. But- The answer to your question, Joe, is that one of the fundamental things that all cells do is communicate with each other, right? So what's going on inside me? What's going on inside you? What's happening with our neighbors? Are are there things we should do to utilize resources better? Like nutrients? um, Should what's happening with our survival, right? So cells are constantly communicating with each other about a myriad of different things. And that is true for normal cells and it's true for cancer cells. And Theodora studies one of the most basic aspects of cellular communication, which is trying to understand how the language that cells use, and we call those signals, how is that language shared? and what are the responses? And the reason that's so critically important is that cancer cells fundamentally do two things that are really horrible and they do them great. And that is that they multiply didn't indefinitely, right? A cancer cell divides and divides and divides. And it also can move to other parts in the body. And we call that metastasis. And those are two horrible aspects of cancer. So, As cancer cells make those decisions, quote unquote, about those processes of cell division and movement, they have to communicate with each other and inside themselves. And we really have so many questions about how that happens. And on a single cell level, it is impossible at this point, or I should say extraordinarily challenging to study that in a whole animal, but in a worm a microscopic roundworm we call C. elegans, and you can knock it out of the park. So Theodore is going to tell us all about what she studies, why she studies it, and how she's really going to move the bar in cancer research. So I think you're going to love her.
0: Called the police on you,
1: huh? (laughs) That's the, uh...
0: Not the last time we get the police called on you.
1: Well, you know, it happens every Wednesday here in Decatur. It's our tornado siren. So... uh... Hey, Theodora. How are you? I'm doing great today,
2: Susanna. How are you?
1: Great. It's a beautiful day in Atlanta, and I am so jacked to talk to you. This is going to be really fun. So if you're ready, we're just going to dive in. Yeah, sounds great. All right. So first things first, I heard through the grapevine, you have a really cool kind of entree into science. So I think our listeners would enjoy hearing about your background. So we'll just tell us, how did how did you get interested in science? Well, so my, my family
2: is an entertainment industry family going way back. My grandfather um, worked in the, he was a comedian and composer in the Borscht Belt in the 30s and 40s, Oh,
1: cool.
2: oh wow! Uh, or like it's his 40s and 50s after the war. Um, he and my grandmother would spend summers, you know, at the summer camps. So if you watch Dirty Dancing or like the second <gasps> season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, that That was my grandfather's world. He was a comedian.
1: (laughs) Two of my favorite shows ever.
2: Oh, my God. So that was my grandfather's world. And my grandmother was much more left-brained. And she was actually one of the first women to graduate from Columbia Law School. She went on to become the vice president of legal affairs at Paramount and at MGM.
0: That sounds like a stressful job.
2: There are people who are still afraid of her. Um and, and and she's been dead four years. So
0: <laughs>
2: she you know, entertainment industry family. And my uncle is a writer, my dad is a writer, director, producer, my mom's a hair and makeup artist, all my cousins are writers, and I also uh I wrote for the stage mostly in high school and in college. It's- I wrote and directed a lot of plays and then, sort of, when it came time to think about a career, I actually just had really bad social anxiety about the entertainment industry. I just so did. You
1: fit in great with us. With the <laughs> um,
2: I, I wanted to find something else that I could do. And I had always gotten good grades in math and physics and biology. So I got into my head that I was going to teach high school biology. And I even wrote an essay about this that won an essay competition in the now defunct seed magazine. Um, But that was the first uh, sort of published writing in the sciences of mine was in 2005. Um, And I shared a page with EO Wilson. I was like, this is awesome. I want more of this, like EO Wilson is awesome. And in the course of studying to be a high school biology teacher, I just kept on wanting to know more and wanting to know more and wanting to do research. So I like volunteered in a lab at UCLA was my first step. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I'll be a teacher next year because there's this research apprenticeship at this Marine Biology Research Station in near Seattle that I want to go do. And I went and did this research apprenticeship at Friday Harbor Labs. I'm like, well, this is awesome. And I ended up getting a technician job at a lab at the University of Washington. And I was like, well, this is great. I want to keep doing this. And then I ended up getting my post back there. And so I, you know, sort of did all of the bio major requirements and got a second degree um, and then applied to graduate schools and ended up in New York City and just kept on going from there. I, I There's no end to how much more I want to learn about science, basically.
1: I love that story. It's that, well, first of all, I think it's... Mm-hmm a borderline hilarious that you had social anxiety about Hollywood and ended up (laughs) in science where, you know, we do our best, but we're not all a scientist known for being, you know, so fantastic on the stage. So you found your people. So welcome. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I love coming to work every single day. I feel like everybody here is just themselves and real and passionate about what they're doing. They're not trying to sell something or Pretend to be someone they're not. Uh, No, no offense to Hollywood types, of course.
1: (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) intended. All right. So, but we we have a heavy lift and to do today, and and that is because the work that you do is such fundamental science, and it has this super cool and incredibly important connection to cancer, which is what our listeners are going to be interested in. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we're going to use some of that passion that you have for why you do what you do to to, to tell this story about how your work connects to cancer. Um, all right, but first, yes, your your work is in a field that I think we would largely call developmental biology, which has made just, oh, we could talk for days, right? So enormous concentri- contributions to cancer research. Um, but... I think it would surprise a lot of our listeners to learn the model system that you work in, because oftentimes when we interview scientists on the podcast, they work in mice, or maybe they work in monkeys, or maybe they're doing clinical trials in humans. But your work is in a nematode worm called C. elegans. So first of all, most of our listeners probably would Relate more to round worms. Um,
2: right. And I which, think most of my friends are in the same boat. I tell them I'm like, need to go to, I can't hang out with them tonight because I'm like making mutant worms have sex with each other. And they're like picturing evil earthworms or something.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, tell us how big are they? What do they look like? And right. you know, most important, so- why are they so useful? Right, so these are these
2: really, really tiny worms. They have almost nothing in common with earthworms other than the fact that they're a tube with an in and an out. And the reason why researchers love to work with C. elegans is because they, you can grow them really rapidly. You know, you're working in mice, you're waiting months and months and months between experiments and in C. elegans, you can not only do, get a lot more data much more quickly because their life cycle is so much faster, but because they're so tiny, you can look at the function of every single one of their cells as it is functioning inside the body of this animal, which is very difficult to do in mice. That technology is definitely being developed and it's absolutely incredible that in vivo or sort of live inside the animal movies that you can make, but with C. elegans, you can do a lot with very little resources. And that is part of the reason why I've chosen this organism to work with.
1: That's so interesting. I, I love the thought of, which I think many of our listeners have ha- are having of you sitting there with this vat of <laughs> tiny little worms. But I think the, the, the mental picture that you've given us that they are tiny and they're so tiny that we understand the function of every cell in these animals. And that's absolutely critical for what you study, which is how cells talk to each other. How do they communicate? Um, Cells, of course, have to do that. Healthy cells do, cancer cells do, because they need to to share information about survival, what's going on with them, what's going on with their neighbors. So, maybe help us understand since we're gonna talk about your work in this space, especially for cancer cells, why is it so important for us to to understand how they communicate and why and when? Right, well, I like to think of the genome as
2: a giant cookbook and your individual genes or sets of genes that a particular cell is gonna use, like say a skin cell, is only opening to certain parts of the cookbook. And the way it knows, you know, what to do is thanks to signals from the cells around it. And cancer cells are all carrying the exact same cookbook, but they are kind of either misunderstanding the instructions that they're getting from the cells around them and and cooking the wrong dishes, or they've just decided like, you know, I'm gonna make this set of proteins that's going to allow me to free myself from my neighbors and go crawling around the body of my host and infect their lungs. And that's, you know, that's metastasis right there. So studying developmental biology really is the best way to understand how any individual cell knows what to do or decides what to do and when, and then how it executes that behavior. So um, that when we are starting to try to understand cancer, we have a, a fuller understanding
1: of, you know, what a cell is even capable of. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I think a lot of us don't sit around thinking all the time about all the different decisions basically that a cell has to make and how much it's going to rely on really fundamental aspects of communication with neighboring cells to make a decision and relay that outcome. And so for scientists, we use t- a term called signaling to mm-hmm. really describe that communication, both the communication that occurs outside a cell, like with neighbors and inside the cell itself. So that's that's really what you study is absolutely um, kind of one of those languages. Or, or if we use your a really lovely analogy of a cookbook I guess in in some ways you're studying one of those ingredients that a cancer cell would use in order to either erroneously or correctly make the recipe and so the the signal that you study is a group of proteins called notch so help us out what is yes. Notch, and how is it possibly related to cancer right so
2: notch when, when you're talking about notch signaling, you're talking about a whole, like you said, a whole group of proteins that what it really boils down to, if you just take two cells that are next to you, you have one cell that's sending a signal and one cell that's receiving a signal. The cell that's receiving the signal, because it has received that signal, decides to cook a particular recipe, uh, which geneticists are going to say it, it decides to transcribe certain genes and And that will activate all kinds of processes in the cell, uh, such as, you know, different cellular behaviors. It could cause, you know, receiving a notch signal can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different cells. And that's something that we haven't entirely figured out. But some of the things that notch has been shown to be responsible for in a cancer setting is cells that are either misunderstanding or over interpreting that notch signal are going to divide too many times, then you get a tumor or they divide and differentiate into the wrong kind of cell. And then you get some kind of other, you know, immune disorder or a blood disorder. And so in the C. elegans worm, we have the exact same situation where you have a signal sending cell and a signal receiving cell. And in the case of these worms, as long as they are receiving the notch signal, they continue to divide and they don't differentiate and then when they stop receiving that signal they turn into a different type of cell and at this broad level you know we know that that's what's happening but we still don't really understand you know what causes the signal to last for a certain amount of time what causes the signal to stop how does the cell you know decide whether to keep listening or not
1: it's really a brilliant summary of not only what notch does and notch family proteins but gracious how much we don't know but i think the fundamental thing that we know is that in cancer cells that ability to both receive and respond to a Notch signal is pretty critical and as you said we know that in worms, when the cells stop receiving the signal, they stop dividing. And if we could understand that, you know, that's that's really the thing. Cancer cells do two things that are really terrible. One is they divide indefinitely.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and that second is that they can move to other parts of the body. And normal cells don't do either of those things. Absolutely. Right? So, yeah, if we could understand in the worm the role that notch plays in those processes, it it seems like we can eventually move that work. And the goal is to move that work to understanding cancer in humans. So let me right. let me ask uh, a little bit more about that. So yeah. what do we then not know? What is the what are the things that you're like, oh I, I have no idea what notch is doing here? And if we knew this would be such a fundamentally important discovery. Right. So this is
2: exactly the point where my research is right now and why I'm so excited about it because I feel like I am starting to explore a notch signaling situation in a way that as far as I can tell, people haven't been thinking about it this way before. And and I'm going to take a step back to cancer for a second and talk about bone marrow cancers. Um, So you have blood stem cells inside of the bone marrow are in very close contact with these other cells, uh, endothelial cells, we can call them the niche cells. They're kind of like home base for these stem cells of, of the blood and they fit really perfectly into this home base cell. The cell like wraps around it You're going to love this. The technical term, the scientific technical term is actually cuddling.
1: (laughs) Oh, I do love that.
2: So the niche cells cuddle the blood stem cells. And we know that during that cuddling, they're exchanging notch signals. But what we don't know is whether the amount of cuddling has an impact on the way the notch signal is received or interpreted. And it's really hard to get inside the bone marrow of a vertebrate. But what's great about C. elegans is the cells that I'm looking at do exactly the same thing. I have a bunch of stem cells that get cuddled by a niche cell. And what I'm studying is the mechanisms that direct the shape of that cuddling, basically. Like, is the stem cell... 10% touching the niche cell? Is it 90% touching the niche cell? And what does that mean for the stem cell? So it looks like the the proteins in this notch signaling situation might actually be involved not just in transmitting the signal, but in changing the shape of the cuddling. And for that to happen, this this is really something we don't know a lot about the notch proteins themselves some of my work is pointing to the possibility of the notch proteins actually being sticky between each other so the signal sending cell is actually there's like physics going on it's actually sticking to the sending signal receiving cell using these notch signaling components using these notch signaling proteins so that's that's really sort of the forefront of where I'm at right now. And I think that would be the the next most interesting thing to know about Notch is what other things does it do besides transmit signals?
1: Oh, it's just fantastic. And it the obvious thought that I have is w- what happens in the bone marrow of of humans? What what happens to these blood cells and is it the time that this interaction occurs? Is it how tight? Like I'm kind of thinking of Velcro that, you know. Absolutely. I think
2: these are the biggest open questions when it comes to blood cancer and other blood disorders is how, how do the interactions between the blood stem cells and their niche work? how do those interactions happen and what do those interactions mean for the life of those stem cells and their, you know, continued behavior in terms of differentiation or movement or all the things that are essential to get right for our blood to work and not be cancer.
1: Absolutely. So as you perform this research, this, this, research that you're being funded by the American Cancer Society do, to do, and as you, you understand more about how these interactions work, what might you do next? Like, I, I think our listeners would love to know how these really basic observations, but absolutely essential, right? Cancer cells, they divide, they move around, and, and there are community, really basic communication signals that are not only allowing, but perhaps telling them to do that. Mm-hmm. So help us understand how do you move potentially from mm-hmm. these observations and see elegance to the next step and then maybe the next step beyond that?
2: Right. So I think in my wildest dreams, I will be able to show a new role for Notch signaling proteins and and show how they actually do affect the shape of the interaction between two cells and then that interaction feeds back and contributes to signaling environment and the way instructions between cells are sent and interpreted and then what that kind of you know what those kinds of results would likely involve is It would enable, well, one thing I think it it would have treatment implications because, you know, Notch is used in so many different contexts in the body. It's very difficult to target it with drugs because you would just mess up so much more than you'd intend to. It, It could be really bad for the patient. But if we identify a specific interaction between Notch and the cell next to it, then drugs could target specifically those sticky interactions without affecting signaling too much and it might be it might be possible to treat cancers or other disorders with a you know with a more specific drug target rather than just you know notch as a whole cuz that's such a huge crucial signaling pathway in every animal
1: yeah absolutely and i think you make a really great point that your expertise is in developmental biology, but the the scientific process is that you make these observations, share them, and the way we share them in science is to publish them, and then perhaps another scientist in another lab reads your paper who studies drug development and maybe studies those sticky proteins and realizes, what if we had a drug in our repertoire that could maybe inhibit one side or the other of that Velcro.
2: Yeah, exactly. And also I think that my research has the potential to um, elucidate all the different parts of that Velcro that might also be used in other organisms, including humans. So that maybe you don't have to target Notch at all. You can target this other part of the Velcro that would have a huge effect on on someone's cancer prognosis without messing with them too badly.
1: It's just amazing. It's amazing that how the web of science is connected and we're, we're just really excited for you. And so let's pivot back to that first question I asked, which was more about your career. But let me take one step back and say that I think One thing that is really interesting about your project is that it was specifically selected by a donor group for funding. So I'd like to know two things. I'd like to know, you know, what's it like to get that phone call that your grant's been funded? Um, So maybe let's start there. It was amazing. It was was actually quite unexpected. I applied for a grant
2: from the ACS initially in the beginning of 2019 and at the time my grant was not funded they said they liked a lot of aspects of my grant but at the time there wasn't funding available so it was put in the pay if pool um which i thought was like a sort of consolation prize i didn't think it meant that i would ever get funding (laughs) and then like i don't know sometime last year, sometime in 2020, it's all a blur to me. Um, I got an email from Zachary Morris saying that there was a small group of donors in the Northeast who were interested in funding a postdoc. And would I write a little update of where I'm at with my research since I had initially submitted my grant? And I I was very happy to do so, especially because I had found some exciting new things since I had initially submitted the grant to ACS. And then lo and behold, I, got, I feel like I got adopted. It's like adopt a postdoc. Um, <laughs> these, these incredibly generous donors who just of their own generosity have, have pooled their funds and decided to go to the ACS and say, hey, we want to fund a postdoc or several postdocs. Here's the money that we've raised on our own. Connect us to someone who has science that we're interested in. Um, and I just felt so incredibly honored to be selected for, for that in that really oddly specific way. They said they liked my writing,
1: which was incredibly flattering. Absolutely. And I think it really, I mean, hats off to you because you were able to explain to a group of individuals who, I mean, people don't donate to the American Cancer Society, unless they have been impacted by cancer, right? They are either patients or survivors right. or caregivers or have loved somebody who has or had cancer. And so the fact that you were able to relay in such a lovely way, the importance of your fundamental science to this group, I think really speaks very highly of your skills. And so we're really, we're really grateful for that. Um, And you're right. We're certainly grateful for these volunteers. These are, they, all of our volunteers and donors are just incredible. And they just seemed
2: amazing. We were on a conference call together and it just felt really special to, to be able to interact with them in that really personal way.
1: So let's loop back to my other question, which Mm -hmm. is... Good Grant, you're right. It just got scooped up and funded because the ACS had already deemed it as being outstanding, but you're right, we didn't have enough money to fund it. So it was then funded by this donor group. So how might that change things? How might this funding to do this fundamental cancer work impact your own research and career goals? Well,
2: I'm incredibly lucky because the lab that I'm in, I already get a tremendous amount of autonomy and responsibility for my own project. So I think what happens in a lot of cases, getting your own funding means, you know, you don't have to answer to anybody as much anymore, but I already have such an incredible supportive mentor that that aspect's not gonna change too much for me. I think what this does for me is it opens the, opens the possibility for me to consider my academic career more seriously. Uh, you know, I think it's very difficult to get a serious academic position without independent funding already. And maybe previous to this, I wasn't exactly sure where this was all going. And now I have really been able to think like, well, what is the deep future of my research? What, what do I want to study next? You know, not just for the purposes of this lab and this postdoc for a few years, but, you know, where do I see this all going? And, and that's, that's fun to be able to sort of feel like I can look into the future like that.
1: That's outstanding. You know, our goal at the ACS is to scoop up the best and the brightest. So I feel like. You <laughs> I can't know, believe the amount of flattery on this. <laughs> it's, a, it's a reciprocal relationship, right? You feel lucky to have us, but um, I know we're lucky to have you. So, all right, Theodora, let's. Let's level set though, because you're, you are in a situation and it still blows my mind that in 2021, I even have to ask this, but I Mm -hmm. do, this is, Mm -hmm. this is not an easy career full stop. It is especially not an easy career for women. So you have been successful and I think this is a nice opportunity for you to share just kind of your advice. Right. So, what would you share with other women who are considering a career in science? Wow. Um, I think you. I think you really need to follow your
2: instincts and find the right mentors. Be yourself, really. And I think more and more people are bringing their whole selves to the lab, and don't underestimate the impact that your experience on a day-to-day basis and how that impacts your well-being. Don't underestimate what effect that has on the quality of your research and the quality of your thinking. You know, there's there's definitely a superhero mentality in a lot of science. I'm going to work 60 hours a week and I'm going to get the highest quality publications. And that works great for some people at some stages in their lives. And I don't discourage that. But also, you know, if you're if you're at work, if you're in the lab, and it feels great, keep going. And if it starts to feel bad, rest up, take a step back, think through your stuff, go for a walk, you know, whatever it takes. Um, your well-being, you are your science. And I guess that's not advice I would only give to to women. I think anybody anybody working in the sciences, you know, we are our science. And if we can't be ourselves at work and fuel ourselves the way we need to be fueled, we're not going to do good work. Well, Theodora, I'm
1: awfully glad we scooped you up and didn't lose you to Hollywood. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a real win for the ACS. So best of luck to you. It's just been delightful. Thank you so much, Susanna. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.